Welcome to Two Pint PLC. My name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I graduated from Omaha South High School. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I graduated high school from Dodge City, Kansas. Professional discussions should not be restricted to the workday. This is our personal yet professional dialogue. So grab a seat, grab a glass, and join us. We will discuss that we might improve. This week, we are drinking Blackjack Porter from the Left Hand Brewery. I have to admit, when I was buying this, I could not read their label. I, I believed that this was something other than our scheduled test for quite some time. Uh, I am familiar with Left Hand Brewery and enjoy what they make, though I am not familiar with this porter. This is our final in the batch of initial release episodes where we're trying to lay out our views on the fundamental tenets of education. And the last one's kind of a big one, uh, talking about the institution of education at large, the context of what we do within society. It is a very big deal. Education is a social technology uh, to uh, solve the problems of citizen preparedness. And that means everyone has a stake in it, which means there are many, many perspectives regarding how it should be done uh, within the context of that society. So there's gonna be a lot of, a lot of voices on how we should be doing education, uh, and they don't always agree. Don't always, that's, that's well stated. So our, our article kind of highlights that everybody has a stake in this. Uh, we're considering one publication that's coming out of Florida, but there, there are all sorts of things happening across the country and across time uh, in recent memory as people try to navigate what they think is important on, a, on several different levels. Uh, you and I are both science teachers and scientists by experience, and so uh, we've got some, some issues that show up in the news a lot, especially in Kansas. We were, we were pretty well known uh, in the not too distant past uh, for some controversy, but it's not just in science. There's a stake for this in all sorts of different subjects. So this seed article uh, the title is New Florida Law Lets Any Resident Challenge What's Taught in Science Classes, and it's by Sarah Kaplan. And uh, what is the publication? The article comes from the Washington Post, is this particular article, but the there are comments that were published in Nature, which is a very impactful, high-profile science journal on the topic, and I'm certain that there are a number of other news publications that have stories on it. So we have read the article from the Washington Post, but it has been discussed in many forums. The nutshell summary of this article is that in Florida, uh, unbiased hearing officers are placed to uh, essentially act as a referee for when parents challenge some of the ideas that are being uh, taught or presented during the school, through the school curriculum. Well, you said parents. But the details of this legislation, I think, is are important because it's any resident, any taxpayer uh, can bring a can bring a, a complaint to the school district for any of the curricular material. And I didn't see any indication in the in what I read either in the Nature article or in this publication that it there was any threshold beyond one. Any single complaint triggers this unbiased hearing officer, whatever that means. Uh, to to describe to determine to arbitrate whether or not this uh, this curriculum is appropriate or should be removed from from the classroom and I think that it highlights a tension between what all of the many stakeholders believe that they want from an educational system and 
what trained education professionals are trying to do within their individual classrooms. So it's great whenever I say, I want my student to be prepared to do science experiments, and the science teacher says, great, we will do science experiments. That's, that's, that's wonderful, that's great, let's do that. But too often there are concerned stakeholders, whether they be parents or employers or university personnel or counselors or any of the myriad of other stakeholders in these students' education who disagree with some particular component of the curriculum. How do we navigate what people think they want and what the particular practitioner believes is in their best interests? That's a tricky problem for teaching because it is a common perception that we know what teaching is and we know how it is done. There are very few professions in our life that we spend 12, 12 years daily with that profession. And so we, as students in our primary and secondary years, get a lot of experience with teachers. So we feel that we have a robust understanding of what teaching is like. And so then when we become uh, adult citizens and we have agency to spend on how we want to change our world, we do so with a belief that we understand what teaching is. And so uh, there's this, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it a fallacy, that the citizenry has a good understanding of the complexities of teaching and so are entitled to weigh in and uh, expend agency to change that as the same as someone who has studied education psychology and has practiced that particular craft. I think it's worth making a comparison here. I was very fond of an analogy or a demonstration rather of uh, the difference between familiarity and understanding is there was a, a, a broad demonstration where many people were asked, do you know how a toilet works? And most people respond yes. And they say, describe in a direct sequence of cause and effect how a toilet works. And aside from a few plumbers or particularly invested uh, home DIYers, there were a great many people who were at a loss. Well, you push the handle, what does the handle do? And even though people are generally aware there's water in the back of a toilet tank, they were shocked and surprised by their own ignorance of the internal workings of a toilet when it's something that they use really frequently. And so um, we're presented with this discrepancy between familiarity and understanding. And I think that you've described that, uh, that phenomenon for the layperson here as well. When we've experienced 12 or even as the rate of enrollment in colleges and vocational institutions increases, 16, 17 years of daily exposure, uh, people believe that they know how learning works, which is particularly dangerous when we experienced it two decades ago, if you went to a doctor who's still doing the very same thing that that doctor was doing two decades ago, that would be completely unacceptable. They would have their license revoked. So it can be difficult for somebody when they see teaching and they identify something that is different from what they experienced two decades ago without wrestling with the nature of our changing profession. My very first day in my teacher education program, my instructors presented a Hebrew proverb that said, do not limit your children's education to your own, for they are born of another time. And I think that, that is a pithy way to speak to what we're discussing now. Um, something is being taught in science classes that wasn't taught when the parent was a 
uh, a student and they did all right, so it shouldn't be taught now. Or something they're doing something strange and different in the English class that wasn't done uh, when we were a kid, so uh, I'm uncomfortable with it being done now. Both as teachers and as uh, parents and as citizens, we have to come to understand that if we are to improve anything, it's going to have to be different than it was before because it's not perfect. It's not perfect now. I think that stakeholders should be allowed to hold teachers accountable. I think that it is okay and appropriate to have classroom practices challenged and to ask for uh, the supporting research and to d debate the utility of curricular choices, I think we should be held accountable. So the question is, how do you balance having a great many people who are not trained in education holding someone with that training accountable, but then also not ceding all of the agency of a classroom to one practitioner so that we're subject to all of that any one person's mistakes. How do you, how do you deal with the, the conflict between those two things? In your question, you asked, or you mentioned that you're a big proponent of uh, asking someone what they're doing and looking for the research that justifies that particular behavior. I am 100% yes that. I am 100% with that. Uh, professionals should have answers to the question, why are you doing that and why do you think that is the best method? So how do you decide when we can overrule them and when we need to yield to them? How do you make that decision? I like that decision being in the hands of the, the administrators of the school, the, the principal or the vice principal. That's what I that's where I feel that it is most comfortably held. Um, however, uh, in this article, they say they are outsourcing the adjudication of those conflicts to the unbiased hearing officer. And what I, uh, maybe I missed it, but I didn't really hear or I didn't really pick up a lot of information about how that officer is selected, whether it's appointed, elected. I don't know anything about who that officer is. Yeah, I don't know either. And without that information, that puts a lot of questions into how this will play out. If it is a political uh, office that is elected by the public, that means there will be political considerations based on the current political climate regarding how those things will be adjudicated, those conflicts will be adjudicated. Is it an appointment? Is it hired by the district? Is it is there one for each school selected and hired for by the primary principal? Um, is it a popular vote? Uh, and in any of those cases, it, it's chosen through the lens of the chooser. All of those situations, unless we are drawing from the jury selection pool and saying this random person there's going to be some introduction of some bias and there's some pretty recent research out from uh, from the pew people that lay out some really stark differences in confidences in different institutions depending on political leanings because we live in a, a particularly politically charged environment right now, I think even relative to uh, some of the past years. Like right now, those divides are as big as they've been in quite some time. In this Pew research, we've got uh, only 10% of Republicans have confidence in the national news media. So, the, so they are not going to accept anybody with uh, news analysis credentials in that position. And alternatively, we've got 59% of self-identified Democrats having strong belief in labor unions, and that's going to make a lot of, that's gonna make some people uncomfortable. So that there are these strong biases 
depending on political leanings, and that's only one of a great many belief structures that are going to inform uh, how this person does their job. I think that it, I think that the idea that they will be unbiased is insane. I think that it, that it, it cannot be true. Whether it should or shouldn't, it can't. I agree. I love that you mentioned that the ad- administrators of a school are a great place to put that authority because I agree with that statement. And I think they they are they have the education training to navigate these problems. They have the authority to uh, to implement policies that are responsive to the research. And there's another example uh, in the news recently, and this one's also from Florida. Uh, in Marion County, there's a superintendent who has decreed that there will be no daily homework in, in that district's elementary schools. Just, we will not do this. The, the superintendent shared the research that was guiding that policy choice, said this is the indication that homework does not lead to increases in any of our desirable outcomes for our elementary school students. Uh, whereas just reading, read, elementary school students should read. So you will not assign homework, you will just let them read. And that was like, that's the deal. That's what's happening. And I think that's a great indication of administrators administering. I think that's awesome. And I, I think that more administrators should strive to do things like that. So that's an example of an administrator doing something wise with their experience. Now, even though I do believe that this uh, responsibility should belong at the administrator level, um, I also accept that there are administrators that don't always make the best choices just like there are teachers that don't always make the best choices and students that don't always make the best choices there are administrators that don't always make the best choices um i heard a story um of a of a teacher who was teaching uh at some location in 1984 uh, which is a richly political book that is a book about conflicting political themes and i don't really think it matters who uh is our who our president is at the time there are themes in 1984 cautionary themes that are relevant to any administration in what ways is this administration like what's happening in 1984 and in what ways is this administration not like what is happening in 1984 and i think that since literature and art is uh, oftentimes a reflection of society uh, i think having a critical comparative reading of 1984 to what to what is happening in any administration is an excellent way to read that book but i heard a story where a teacher was reprimanded and received negative marks in a review uh, because one of the parents complained that 1984 was taught in a political fashion that was conflicting with one of the parents' political beliefs, and that administrator told the teacher to not teach 1984 in a political way. Don't teach it politically. But still teach it. But still, still teach still it. Do it. Yeah, teach 1984, but not politically. I think that was a bad call. So what do you do as a teacher in that position where you have this institutional constraint placed on you from above? And that can take all manner of form, whether it be do a poor job of this curricular objective or there this book is not allowed at all or these math techniques are not appropriate just give them a worksheet or sex education is eliminated from this particular physical education curriculum or you can you can't address these particular standards in the next generation science standards because they pertain to anthropogenic climate change there there are across 
I think, all subjects contentious areas. So as a teacher in that setting, what do you do? So let's, so okay, all of this is well and good. Philosophical, general discussion. But I am in the trenches. I am muddy. I am tired. It's March. And this policy has come down that I must assign homework grades twice a week. And I know that that is not aligned with research-supported practices for providing uh, timely feedback and desirable difficulties, and it's inconsistent with my classroom culture, but this edict has come down. Teachers are creative. Teachers are creative professionals. I think it's one of our greatest assets. So what if I had two homework numbers in my gradebook that are unweighted, and I let the students pick them on Tuesday and Thursday? So the edict is satisfied, and it does not detract from the classroom culture I've established. So there's this, this other discussion to be had about individual teachers navigating this constellation of institutional constraints, when at the end of the day, we have authority in most cases within the walls of our classroom between the bells. So when is it appropriate for me to say, okay, here is the specific rule, and here's how I can make it work without changing things versus becoming obstinate and stagnant because I'm just remolding all of my standard practices and I haven't changed and made any meaningful changes for 20 years. How do you navigate the stagnation versus the response to constraints that we think are not beneficial? I think you are conflating things that don't actually go together. Uh, stagnation of teaching practices is its own isolated problem and that is a cultural problem or, or maybe an individual philosophical problem but stagnation suggests I have solved it I do not need to improve I do not need to invest in the research of my profession I do not need to get better or I can't and either of those attitudes are is a problem but that is different than I'm going to take what I do and uh, reskin it so that I look like I am following these professional development or professional procedural edicts that come from a higher authority. Um, that second answer to me is play ball and lay low, but play ball and lay low does not preclude the responsibility of the teacher to independently reflect and improve on their practice in light of a growing research base. I don't think it's a conflation because it goes back to that not special principle that I mentioned earlier of our administrators, if they're doing their jobs, are attuned to a research base. And presumably it's a different base of research, albeit overlapping, from the things that we've seen. We're going to read different stuff. So if their agency over the classroom is to implement policies that are consistent with research, there will be times they implement policies that I don't understand. And so in that setting, when I nope a policy, some of them will have been able to make me better. So if, uh, if a, an administrator says, you must put learning objectives on the board, and I say, I don't want to, no. Maybe that's consistent with a more conceptual approach to development of schema, and it's more uh, it reflects my fluid uh, response to student uh, engagement and interest and knowledge on a day-to-day -day basis. Or maybe that's a way for me to avoid clearly defining learning objectives that need to be shored up in my classroom. And while I believe it's one or the other, there will be times that I'm wrong about that. So how do you, if I just nope all of my administrators' edicts, 
that are inconsistent with what I currently do in the classroom, then that means that presumably there will be times that I have missed an opportunity to do things better. As teachers, we have to ask, when do we want our students to simply compl comply with a behavior? And when do we want our students to struggle to develop their schema in this topic? And I think administrators, they have to ask that same question. When do I want my teachers to comply with this behavior? And when do I want my teachers to grow their uh, pedagogy schema to be more effective in the classroom? If I have research that supports a statement that says we should be doing this in the classroom and people check out, uh, that's not really much different than students um, having some kind of learning objective in the classroom which they are not hitting and not growing to hit. So what do I do to encourage student behaviors and what do I do to encourage teacher behaviors to become more comfortable with that research base? Now, I don't have, like, the answer to that question in terms of the classroom, which is where I'm very, I, I don't even say very comfortable, where I'm more comfortable exerting agency, I have answers to that question. Here are some behaviors that I would do in my classroom to help students get to a place where we can develop their schema for this concept. I have answers. I have some, some answers to that. I have fewer answers from the how does an administrator answer that question. I have some ideas, but they really aren't research-based supported ideas. They are things that I think feel good and true, and so I don't really have a good answer to that. But that's where I would want my administrator to begin to answer that question. They're not dissimilar. So I have more experience, if not administering, teaching teachers. That's the thing that I do have experience doing uh, and expertise doing. And they're not very different. If I demonstrate that this is a high priority for me and it's a conceptual objective rather than eliciting compliance, when you have consistent expectations with good feedback that leads to a growth in competency as a teaching professional, you will see those policies followed spiritually, even if they're not followed to the letter, which I think is our goal. Uh, and we can know that that will happen because dopamine is real. Mm, when dopamine's so good. If a, if a policy has actual efficacy improvement consequences and a teacher sticks with that practice long enough so that they are able to uh, develop their own capacity to execute it, then they will see the growth and the effect that it has on their classroom. That will give them professional dopamine in regards to their professional identity, and then they will seek it again. This all presupposes that the decision makers have a have experience and familiarity with education, research, and practice. That is not always the case. Th this topic today, external influences in the classroom, I can't not consider, and we've mentioned a little bit about the political, um, political uh, influences based on the Florida law that was passed, mm -hmm. uh, but one of the things that I'd like to point out is that there's another, there's another trend that occurs, and this trend is dissatisfying to me, but I am part of the problem. So. The finger that I'm pointing at is at myself. And, and that is all across the nation, it is very, very common for uh, local boards of education to be populated with very, very few educators, uh, if any at all. Uh, I prepared for this episode. Our local school board has three business owners, one family farmer, one working businessman, and two bankers. And zero educators, zero teachers.
And I think that that's just a, a, a cultural consequence of, of how our society works. If you're able to own and create and run a successful business, then uh, you already have stakes in the health of your community and you're thinking about community development because you want your community to be healthy because your business and your community have a relationship so the health of one uh, supports the other so that's totally natural that they would be want to serve uh, at, at a school board and also that uh, if they are uh, exceptionally uh, successful then they have more time that they can invest to serve on school boards which can and other political and resources for campaigning and researches for campaigning and, and things of yeah. that nature yeah so they're at a better position to be able to make that investment and achieve that investment. Um, when I I intend to be a teacher for my entire career, and when I'm done, I intend to retire, and I do not intend to run for school board. Oh my God, you guys, we have it on tape that Woodruff admits he might retire at some point. <laughs> oh no, uh, actually, I have <laughs> always joked that I would just die in the classroom. So I don't I don't know. Um, that I don't have any intention of, of assisting this problem. So I don't think that school, of, school boards of education be 100% teachers either, because there are major financial considerations and administration and management considerations and, and, and practices that I am not familiar with that are necessary for a successful school district. I just think that the current, um, d there's a disproportion of voices and experience on at school districts at the local level well and so go more broadly because there are legislators in every decision-making body that make decisions about issues for which they are not experts that is not unusual i i am related to a legislator and even with his existing knowledge of the municipality and government governance structure was still uh found it remarkable to comment on this when he began his job uh so isn't that the role of professional organizations, of working teachers? Uh, what is the purpose of the teachers' unions and the professional organizations and, um, and even individual teachers in writing and communicating with the public? Isn't that our job to be informing the, the legislative bodies about how best to proceed or at least about the existing research base so that they can make decisions for the for the stakeholders that they represent. Isn't that the job? Isn't that the function of professional development organizations and teachers unions? Or me, uh, as my teacher, it's my job to advise them. Oh, isn't that the job of some branch of the educationally, education professional community? There, there are so many um, comments in the zeitgeist right now about how legislation is in the pockets of big oil and big pharma and big farming and big, I don't know, paperclip, whatever, even though they don't have rep members of the representative body, at least not in the majority, from those industries because they're lo lobbying bodies and their, their, um, their super PACs. Uh, have so much control over the profession. So isn't it not necessary to be on the body to still have an impact on that decision-making process? Well, in the zeitgeist narrative that you proposed, all of the, what allows those organizations to have influence is the amount of money that they can contribute to the influence, which brings us to another article about external uh, influences in districts. Oh, yeah. The Silicon Valley billionaires are remaking America's schools. This is from the New York Times. 
uh, Natasha Singer, and she it's does an in, is an in-depth piece. There, there is considerable information. Uh, this is a big one. This is a nice meaty read, focusing on the influence that successful tech entrepreneurs have on school districts, and there are there are multiple narratives and many conflict regarding uh, what is happening with these these circumstances. This article highlights some of the things that you were referring to. Organizations and individuals who can donate millions of dollars to a district solve a lot of the problems for the complications of, of, of a money uh, flow in that district. But that is never that is never done without consequence. The word equity needs to be said here again. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of things going on. One, not every district in the United States is going to have their angel tech billionaire benefactor that's going to be able to save them out of their financial woes and reduce their class size from 33 to 24, which has happened in districts referenced in this article. And often the ones who stand to benefit the most from such interventions are the ones who most often don't have them. A second complication about this is that, again, a lot of these decisions are made from a very specific viewpoint. And in, these, in the cases uh, di- described in the article, the influential individuals who are, being, who are able to give all this money have the goal to make education more like a business startup. They say that several times. And the question is, is that an appropriate philosophical goal for education? They take it de facto as yes, because they are successful businessmen that have achieved success in a startup growth. So they're like, this is my model for success and I want to apply it to education. I'm glad that they have a place to start from, but is that the appropriate uh, vision? And even if it is, the software that they're defe- that they're developing that they're exposing to all of the students in the district or the hardware that they are developing and making giving access to the students of the district one of the things that really irked me about this article wasn't the philanthropy and it wasn't the potential monopolization and though inequity always gets to me uh, something that really resonated the most is that Limited research has occurred to actually measure the efficacy of these initiatives. And one of these initiatives, uh, an adaptive program that determines which lessons the student needs, the research that has been done says that those adaptive programs do not uh, improve uh, GPA and learning objectives, at least not in college students. So we would need to do more at the secondary and primary level. But initial findings suggest that they are not effective and yet they wield incredible influence over the districts because i'm a teacher i'd turn it down but i don't think i would if i were administrator so at the end of the day the question is i am one teacher in a classroom with 30 students about whom i care deeply their growth and development is my top priority i stay up late i come in on weekends I donate my own resources and materials. I visit professional development events on my own time and dime because their success is what gets me out of bed in the morning. So what do I do? I am feeling pressure from parents, from administrators, 
from my colleagues, from um, other external sources of communication, be those news media or my neighbors or whatnot, uh, to make my classroom uh, feel and look the way that they think it should look. And what I need to do is be able to sleep at night confident that I can support what I did in my classroom. And if I can't, I need to be comfortable saying I need to consider how to change what I'm doing in my classroom. That's how we get through it. We consider those pressures. We consider what we know about education psychology in our practice. And we support what we do with research. Now we do other stuff. Okay, so let's talk content for a little bit. Uh, we're trying to bounce around the different subjects. So for this last one in the initial bundle, let's talk physical education and let's talk athletics. There are a lot of coaches. There are a lot of activity sponsors out there. So let's talk about extracurriculars for a little bit. Uh, and this is getting back to the academic base. Let's talk research. What was the study? The study focused on the consequence of time allocation on school sports and its effect on GPA but specific, specifically, what were the GPA of students when they were in, in, the, in the semester that they were doing the sport compared to the GPA of the same students in the semesters when they were not doing the sport? Data was collected from 2006 to 2011 from, the mid, from Midwest high schools. They collected data regarding the sport that was played, the season they played, level of play being freshman varsity or junior varsity. This was not a survey from students that was self-reported. It was records from the school, and the collected, the, the collected info in, included uh, grades, race, gender, and the monthly rent of the family. What did they measure? Uh, they measured everything. They collect, because they were working with um, SES data, they had, they had so much. Their, their data table was super robust, and they had a really high end. It was like 2,800 students or something like that they considered. They had many, many data points that they plotted. Um, but what was interesting is that because they're looking at GPA, this is not continuous data, 0, 1, 2, or 3. There's sort of such thing as a 2.5 in a particular class. And I think that that matters in this consideration. Uh, and what they were looking at is... It's generally accepted from the research base that participation in extracurriculars improves scholastic performance. But when they're done with a sport, uh, you perceive it and I perceive it from, a, from an anecdotal standpoint. I have a student who's playing football. All of his homework is late all the time because he's always at practice and he's always missing class to go to a game. And then football ends and he comes in and gets it all made up and he gets caught up and he feels great and we're moving on. And man, it isn't wonderful that football is now over. That's the narrative that they were trying to measure. Is that real or is that just a perceived illusion of um, what we experience on an individual basis? What they found between varsity and JV combined, that generally speaking, there was a slightly higher performance in science and math that it, for varsity athletic, athletes, their science and math performance was not meaningfully different being in season or out of season, but that their English and social study performance went down when their season ended. Uh, I would like to confirm the varsity athlete reported consequences because I must have misunderstood. Uh, yeah, I'm quoting from something in the abstract. So small negative significant in-season effect 
for varsity athletes. So during their sport, they Went did down. worse on uh, for English and history. history. Yeah. So not when they're done their sport, while they were in their sport, during football season, senior. I'm going to say seniors, but varsity did worse in English and math. Uh, it was lower in not, season not English and history. Uh, pardon me. Yeah, that, you're right. During season, so. Mm-hmm. When I read through this, basically I said sports are bad for varsity and sports are good for JV. Uh, that that's was conceptually where I was at as well. But you're right; I misinterpreted some of this data. So during the sport, it was it was bad for English and history for varsity athletes, and then came up when they when were they out were of done back to baseline when they were out of yeah, which is the flip for JV. So what's going on? Well, they did propose a narrative to try to explain, uh, draw a proposal for this explanation that students, let's first say, how, how is engaging in more time for sports going to improve scores for junior varsity? And they proposed that students uh, have a certain amount of time. They have time for uh, activities that will improve their standing in uh, in their courses, and they have time for activities that are negative effect activities that may be recreational or uh, distractions that do not improve uh, or maybe be deleterious to their standings in a course. And they suggested that for JV, the amount of time that that they invest in their sport cuts in on their distraction, the time that they have for distractions, but still allows them time for their studies. And so they have this nice pinpoint balance between those two investments. Whereas the varsity athletes competing at a higher level invest a higher amount of time in their sport preparation. And as such, not only are they getting cuts in their distraction relaxation time, but they are also cutting into some of their academic investment time. That was the narrative that they proposed in the conclusion. How do you feel about that? Uh, When I first found this piece of literature and slated it for discussion here. I was amazed and excited to discuss it because what a bizarre trend. Like I was looking forward to trying to figure out what was going on with this trend. Uh, In looking at the data, what a fortuitous turn I think, because I think this is actually an extension of our conversation in 005. Because I think this is bad statistical practice is what I think is going on. They measured such a tremendous number of subcategories and such a tremendous number of breakouts and comparisons. And even in their reporting tables, they're they're marking various levels of p-value. They're marking here's where we hit uh, below 0.1 and here's where we le- hit below 0.05 and here's where we hit below 0.01. And so... And anything below 0.05 is meaningful, and so all of these things count. But uh, there's uh, Randall Monroe and XKCD. Go read XKCD, all of them. Just read all XKCD everywhere. Uh, But he does several uh, comics about statistical practice that I think are illuminating here. Um, There's one that's a joke about if you go measure whether the effect of the Skittle color exists on anything and test 20 Skittle colors, one of them is going to come up positive because that's the threshold we've set as scientists. And I think the same thing is happening here. If you look at their data table, they measure thousands of students. And any researcher can tell you that as you continue to jack up the number of participants, you're going to get below the 0.05 threshold just from brute repetitions 
and that they may not be real trends. And I think that that is, I think that is definitely what has happened here, especially between many different years. It's probable that each individual teacher has representation in the hundreds, if not thousands, for each uh, for each category. So I think that the influence of these confounding variables is magnified to an unacceptable level, and especially because it's such a bizarre trend. I think the burden for uh, for replication is high. I I do not accept this as being sufficient to disrupt my practice as it stands now because I think that their statistics is weak. Uh, another thing, as far as their conclusions go, even if they, they said that, okay, implications, here are the implications. Even if the, um, the in-season varsity GPA hit is real, the size of that hit is small. And because there is a robust body of research that suggests sports are just good and there are a lot of secondary consequential benefits for post-secondary um, uh, successes in terms of because of sports um, uh, participation, that that is an acceptable cost. And so really, we don't change anything. We just, sports are good. They're better for junior varsity than they are for varsity. But they're still good for everybody. So... No change. Here's the data. We think this is weird. No change. It's not actionable. Not actionable. Uh, so, so here's what I actually think. Because uh, I've seen results like this before in other academic settings. What I think this does tell us is that we should tolerate the inconveniences of participation in athletics because what is not in this study is meaningful decreases in performance in season. Right. Even that one that one drop for varsity athletes is slight right. and uh, rectifiable later on. And if we're using practices for our evaluations that are revisable, then that means that even for a fall athletic student, they are going to have the opportunity after that uh, athletic season to rectify what they know in the grade book and experience success on the semester level. So I. I think that this is a justification to tolerate the inconveniences of athletics because what is absent is a drop that is meaningful. I didn't like any of that. So let's talk beer. How was beer? Uh, I liked it. It was aromatic. It was malty. It had coffee, arom uh, coffee overtones. It was brown and rich. Um, it it didn't sting. Uh, it was it was it was kind of it was a, a pleasant. It was, it was like a light roast coffee. I liked it. It surprises me that you like it because uh, I agree those overtones were strong. My first reaction when I had the first couple of drinks was I'm gonna hate this. I I did not like it and was was dreading the hour and a half of tape time we've been drinking it. After the first couple of drinks, it grew on me. And I I think it's okay now. I, I don't know that I love it, but man, my, my first reaction to those first couple of drinks was very negative. Um, uh, but so you I like get, it now. You had to get used to it. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought uh, it was it fun. Was, it was not quite sour or bitter, but Great. it's like a... Like a combination of sour and bitter that I was not familiar with, which is particularly interesting considering our coffee preferences. Yeah. Yeah. I liked it. I would drink again. I'm developing a robust data set of your poor judgment in beer. Sure. I like left hand, I like a lot of left hand stuff, 
And I accept that this is how a porter should taste. And I just don't really want to drink it. Does that mean you don't like porters? I don't know. Maybe. We're well, that vanilla to... porter I really like. Yeah, I like the vanilla porter too. Maybe there's something about the vanilla that takes that changes the flavor of this. Maybe. It gives it body where this is missing some. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. It's weird. Uh, I, I like yeah. it, so. Maybe. Yeah, so here's to you. Uh, here's to you. Left hand. I think that's it. Thanks for listening. Discuss research. And struggle well.